Good evening and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, June 17th, 2021. And I am so grateful to every single one of you for being here tonight so that we can study together. Thank you for allocating the time for this session. There is a great writer. His name is Matt Levine. And he writes about business and economics. And he wrote a piece a couple of days ago about the Bloomberg profile of the Morgan Stanley co-president, Ted Pick. <clears throat> so the profile of him, Morgan Stanley is this giant financial company. Co-president is a, a big deal, Ted Pick. Along the way, he gained notoriety for a unique style of leadership. After getting worked up about the size of another executive's office, feeling that it was too big for his position, Pick called in a construction crew over the weekend and had the walls moved to shrink the room. So Levine comments on that. I hope sarcastically, but you never know. All investment bank management should work like that. All the walls should be on sliding tracks. And each morning you come in and you see how you're doing by how big your office is. Bring in a big deal and you can fit in a sofa. Lose a big client and there's no room for your family photos. Keep losing money for a while and eventually you will be crushed in your office like that Star Wars trash compactor scene. All right, that's one model of leadership. Let's talk about a different model because the subject of leadership is certainly at the heart of the Torah, what God wants us to understand about how to navigate this world, especially the themes are dominant in the book of Bamidbar, the fourth book of the Torah in which we find ourselves, and critically in our Parsha, the Parsha of Chukas. So we're in the 40th year in the desert. The Jews are nearly at the end of their journey towards Israel. And they did not have water. They're in the desert. There's no water. And they came to complain to Moshe and Aaron. So God says to Moshe, Take your staff and gather the people and speak to the rock. And it will give forth its water and you'll be able to give water to all the people. That's what God commands Moshe. Moshe takes the staff as God had commanded. 
and Moshe and Aaron gather the entire people around this rock? Vayomelehem, and Moshe says to the people, Shimu Nahamorim, listen, you rebellious people. Haminasela Hazen Notzilachemayim, I am going to bring water to you from this stone. And then Moshe raised his hand, Vayach Eshasela, Bamateu Pamayim. He struck the stone with his staff twice. And abundant water came out. Everyone had plenty to drink. God says to Moshe and Aharon, You did not have enough faith in me to sanctify me in the presence of the Jewish people. And therefore, you will not be the ones to bring this people into the land of Israel. Let's start with two questions. Question number one, what should Moshe have done? What he did was not right, because Hashem is not happy. What should he have done? That's number one. And number two, what are we supposed to learn about this in terms of how we should act? What's the takeaway for us in our lives? Assuming we're not going to be confronted with a rock that somehow is going to uh, uh, have water that we can bring forth. But in our lives, what do we take from this narrative? Now, I discussed several aspects of this during the week. And tonight, this is one approach that I want to focus on with you now. And that is the approach of the Rambam, Maimonides. The Rambam focuses on Moshe's words when he says, Shimu Nahamorim, listen, you rebellious people. From this stone I will bring forth water. Moshe is a leader. He's a role model. He is someone who is supposed to always be in control of himself. Moshe's words were intemperate. To criticize the Jewish people, to call them a name, to call them rebellious? That was not called for. Says the Rambam, that's why Moshe was held accountable because he, so to speak, raised his voice. He was angry with the Jewish people. Okay, but Rambam, I mean, you have to agree, sometimes discipline is necessary. By the way, we've discussed there's a mitzvah in the Torah of Tochacha that we're supposed to discipline to give constructive criticism. And the truth of the matter is God had provided water for the entire Jewish people for 40 years. Did they actually think he was going to forget about them on the edge of the desert as they were about to enter the land of Israel? 
Didn't Moshe have reason to be disappointed that the Jewish people should have so quickly lost faith and complained to God about not having water immediately the second they needed it? Sometimes you have to raise your voice. Sometimes you have to discipline. Please listen carefully to the approach of Rabbi Elazar Shach. The Tupsukim one more time. Moshe and Aaron gather the people in front of the rock. First Pasuk. Vayomer lehem, and Moshe said to them, Shimu nahamorim. Listen, you rebellious people. Next Pasuk. Vayarem Moshe as yado. Moshe raises his hand. Vayaches asela. And he smites the rock and water comes forth. Says Rav Shach, Moshe was being held accountable for the order in which he spoke. Let me tell you a story. Many years ago, when our kids were young, we took our children on a trip to Israel. It's a wonderful trip. And for a few days of the trip, it was in the summer, for a few days of the trip, we engaged a tour guide, a wonderful, fantastic tour guide. I've had a relationship with him for, for many years. He's a wonderful person. And uh, several of the days, uh, he took us. We had like a van, and he took our family uh, to all kinds of different places, Wonderful. Great, great tour guide. So part of the time we were in the Negev. Now, the Negev is hot to begin with. In the winter, it's hot. In the summer, it is brutal. It's dangerous. Okay, we were prepared. We had lots of water. We had extra gas. We were prepared. But still, it's hotter than you can ever imagine. I mean, Pretend you're a turkey and it's time to serve turkey dinner. That's what you feel like. It's just, you're baked. So um, we're in the Negev. The car has air conditioning, you know, somewhat. Uh, but it, but it's something, has air conditioning. And so, uh, and, and the distances in the Negev are, are kind of far from one place to another. So we get to this place. I have no idea where we are literally the middle of nowhere, literally. And so the guide says to us, oh, this is great. You're going to love this. He stops the car and he says, you're going to love this. It's, it's very short. So don't worry. You won't have to be outside too long. We're just going to walk down this hill and there's a spring at the bottom. You don't even have to carry water because we're just going to walk down and there's a spring and you'll be able to drink. And it's very beautiful. And then we'll come back up and we'll get in the car. Okay. So we start down. It's kind of a steep, not, not far, but it's kind of steep down. Uh, Marcy and I and our four kids. And uh, we get to the bottom. It is kind of beautiful in a desert kind of a way. And we get to the bottom. And it's dry. 
And we look at him and say, "Where? where's the water? And he goes over to where, I guess, the water normally is or might have been or used to be or something. And he said, um, it dried up. I don't know. There's no water. So at this point, our family... Um, we were not in the best mood, I'll put it that way, because our kids were thirsty. And the truth is, I was also thirsty. And it was the middle of the day, it was as hot as you can believe, and there's no water. So he says, uh, well, we're going to have to walk back up to the, to the van to get water. And our kids didn't want to go. I mean, obviously they couldn't have stayed because, but they didn't want to go. They were tired. They were hot. They were thirsty. And the children basically were about to mutiny. I mean, they were about to have a takeover. Had they had some kind of weapon, I don't think the tour guide would have made it out. They were really upset. They were crying. And of course, our youngest, who was, I don't remember the exact age, I do remember that I had to carry her up. And believe me, that was extremely um, physically difficult. And so I was not so happy uh, with this tour guide at this moment also. You're going to take a group, a family, especially, let's just be honest for a moment, Americans from Connecticut, you know, not used to uh, um, that kind of hardship. You know, at least you got to make sure you have water with you. I mean, you can't leave the water in the car. It doesn't do any good. So we're trudging up the hill. Some of the children are crying. The other children are yelling. My wife and I are pretty much upset, pretty ticked off. And we get back to the car. Finally, we all have like two liter bottles of water that we're just downing greedily. And he says to us, that's what it's like to be in the desert without water. Now, my first response was at that moment, I really could have strangled his neck. <laughs> that is, you want to teach me a lesson. Okay. You want to teach me a lesson uh, about what it's like to be in a desert. Let's do it, you know, from a cafe in Yerushalayim, sitting down in the air conditioning, and you'll tell me about it. Okay. So I was about to wring his neck. The other thing is, he, he's, he is a pretty smart fellow. To the best of my memory, from there, he took us all to uh, the kosher McDonald's, and I think everyone had a great day, you know, because we ended off uh, with uh, kosher McDonald's. But here's the thing. This is um, more than 25 years later. And I certainly remember that incident. And of course, there was a truck on top and he was a tour guide and there was water on top. So, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to exaggerate. But when you're in the desert and you're thirsty, you can't just put that on hold. That's a serious matter. The people were thirsty, Moshe. 
They were legitimately thirsty. You took them into a desert. They're traveling around. It's hot and they're thirsty and there's no water. Says Rav Shach, Moshe, first give them water. Then you can admonish them. You should have trusted in God. He's always taking care of you. Why were you worried? But that comes after you've given them water. Moshe did it in the wrong order. That's the point. Moshe yelled at them, criticized them, Shimuna Morim, and then he hit the rock and got the water. Had he hit the rock first and the water would have come out and they would have had water to drink. And then he would have said to them, listen, my friends, that really was not the right thing. The, the impact would have been completely different because they would have known, they would have been assured of his love for them because he took care of them. He gave them the water. Moshe's mistake was not what he said, but the order in which he said it. He did not at that moment have sufficient empathy for what they were legitimately feeling. Had he expressed that, had he expressed his love for them, then he could have taken them to task for complaining, for disbelieving. Fifty, sixty, seventy years ago, eighty years ago, there was an amazing man who lived in Yerushalayim in Jerusalem. His name was Rabari Levine. He was a very holy and sensitive, pious man. I grew up hearing stories about Rabari Levine because my grandparents, my grandfather about whom I've told you, and my grandmother, they were disciples of his. They, they loved to hear him speak. And whenever they went to Israel, they would visit him. And so I grew up hearing stories about the great Rabari Levine. Humble, quiet, sensitive, an amazing man. So here's a story about Rabari Levine. Many years ago in Yerushalayim, there were some stores that were owned by Jews and they were open on Shabbos. Now, I know that today it's unfortunately quite common, but in former times, it was very unusual, especially in Yerushalayim. And there was one store in particular that was owned by a Jewish owner and it was open on Shabbos. All the rabbis in the area spoke to this owner to try to get him to close his store on Shabbos. Lay leaders in the community tried to convince him, but he wouldn't listen. He didn't listen because business was good and the best business was on Friday night and Saturday. Rabbi Levin heard about this. And it hurt him that another Jew would knowingly, willingly desecrate the Shabbos in Yerushalayim. 
And so one Friday afternoon, Rabbi Yilavin got dressed for Shabbos early. He was dressed up in his Shabbos clothes. And he went to this store. It was a little bit before sunset when Rabariya came into the store. And he walked down the aisles. He looked at the goods. He saw that there were a lot of customers coming in and out. And then he sat down on a chair near the back of the store and he was just watching, just sitting there watching. Now, the owner recognized who this was. He knew Rabari Levine, didn't say anything to him, was kind of uncomfortable because the sun is going lower, lower, lower. Shabbos is coming sooner, sooner, sooner. And this rabbi dressed up in Shabbos clothes is sitting in his store. <laughs> it's a kind of an uncomfortable thing. Finally, the man went over to Rabariya and said, Rabbi, I see that you've been sitting here for quite some time. Is there anything I can help you with? Are you feeling okay? Do you need any assistance? Rabariya stood up and he said to this store owner, he said, I heard that you keep this store open on Shabbos. I know that others have come to speak to you about this. But I wanted to come myself and see for myself how difficult it is for you to close on Shabbos. Because I can see that there are so many customers that are not observing Shabbos and your store is going to be so busy on Shabbos. And for you to have to close your store on Shabbos, that is a tremendous sacrifice. It's something that must be so, so difficult for you. And I want you to know, Rabbi, you said to this owner, I feel for you. But what can I say? Shabbos. Shabbos is Shabbos. The store owner was silent for a moment. And then he began to cry. And he said, my dear rabbi, you were the only one who took the time to come here to see the situation from my point of view. And I must tell you, Rabbi, it means so much that you came to see me in the store, to see the problem that I'm facing. Everyone else who spoke to me, they just criticized me. They called me names. They put me down. But it means so much that you didn't just speak to me from a distance, but you came here to see firsthand. And he took Rabari's hand and he wished him a good Shabbos. And he said to you, I promise, Rabbi, within a couple of weeks, I will make arrangements for the store to be closed on Shabbos. And so it was. True leadership. 
requires empathy for what the other person is experiencing, even if it is from a mistaken point of view. I attended Columbia University, and uh, before my time there, one of the most famous professors was Margaret Mead, the famous anthropologist. So when I was there, I took courses in anthropology. I found it fascinating. And I studied with a student of Margaret Mead. So in addition to everything else, she would often tell us stories about the great, um, uh, famous uh, mentor and teacher, Margaret Mead. And she told us once the following story. She said she was in class, this is like years before when she was a student. She was in class with uh, Professor Mead. And a student asked her what she considered to be the first sign of a civilization. If you're studying an ancient civilization and you're going through it and you're trying to understand it, what is it that you would see that would tell you this is the first sign of civilization within a culture. And the student expected Mead would probably talk about maybe something like tools or, or clay pots or grinding stones or something that would lead to civilized life. But that's not what Margaret Mead said. Margaret Mead said, the first sign of civilization in an ancient culture is when you find a femur, a thigh bone, that has been broken and healed for the following reason. Within the animal kingdom, if you break your leg, you die. You can't run from danger. You can't get to the river for water. You can't hunt for food. You are simply meat for prowling beasts. No animal survives a broken leg long enough for the bone to heal. A broken femur that is healed is evidence that someone has taken time to stay with the one who fell. Someone has bound up that wound. Someone has carried the person or even the animal to safety and tended to them through recovery. Helping someone else through difficulty is where civilization starts, said Margaret Mead. And that is precisely where leadership starts. Sometimes you have to discipline. Sometimes you have to criticize. Hopefully it's constructively. But to be effective, it's got to be with love. It's got to be conveyed in the tone, how you make the other person feel when you say what you are going to say. And Rabbi Shach teaches us it also, the lesson coming from our Parsha, it is also conveyed in the order in which you convey 
the various components of your message. One person who did this exquisitely was Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. I heard this from a rabbi who was for a time the secretary of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. When he would write letters, he would dictate them to this rabbi and he would write them out. So this man told a story about the letter writing of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. And he said sometimes Rabbi Feinstein had to write a letter of criticism. Sometimes he had to write a letter to say to a person, what you're doing is not correct. He was the greatest halakhic authority, the greatest expert in Jewish law in his time. He had the responsibility of conveying this information. And if someone was doing something improper, if he felt it was his responsibility, he had to reach out. This man said that Rabbi Feinstein had a set format to such a letter. And it would always contain three paragraphs. The first paragraph would be a paragraph praising and building up the character of this person, how important that person is, how wonderful is the work that that person does. The second paragraph would contain the criticism that he needed to level. The third paragraph would again return to his praise and his uplifting and his admiration for the character of this person. It's the order that is so important. Allow me to share with you another role model who has much to teach us about leadership. This is a slightly different area. One who was a great leader on many levels, Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein of Blessed Memory. He was a POSIC, an expert in Jewish law, answering questions from people all over the world. He was a tremendous scholar, a teacher, a mentor, a role model. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to hear his son speak. His son is Rabbi Moshe Lichtenstein. And he was speaking about his father. And he said in this speech a few years ago, he said, my father, Rabbi Lichtenstein, my father has become a new posek, a new expert decider of Jewish law. Now, that's a surprising comment to make for two reasons. Number one, Rabbi Lichtenstein, his father, had been a renowned posek for decades. What do you mean he is a new posek? And second of all, Rav Moshe Lichtenstein was speaking about his father just a few weeks after his father passed away. He was no longer alive. So what do you mean he's a new posek? I mean, how can you be a new halachic authority after you've passed away. And then he told us this story. And the story occurred five days earlier. There is a man who was a lawyer. 
This man, years ago, had studied in the yeshiva of Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein. Years ago, no contact in many years. So this lawyer had a client who came to see him. And the client wanted the lawyer to do something that would have cut corners a little bit, that would have resulted in a gigantic tax savings. It was a bit of a gray area legally. It was a tremendously large amount of money that was at stake. And the client was pressing the lawyer to agree to this scheme because, of course, it was in his best interest. He would have been able to, I don't know if it was make or to save a gigantic amount of money. And the lawyer was about to agree. But he said, wait just a moment. Please excuse me for a moment. And the lawyer went into another room, quiet room, and he asked himself the following question. What would Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein say about this question? This is after he had died. What would Rabbi Aaron say about what this fellow wants to do? And as soon as he asked himself that question, he knew what the answer would be. And so he came back into the room with his client and he refused to go along with the scheme that his client wanted. Rav Moshe Lichtenstein explained to us the significance of this story is that leadership is not just what you say or do. It's also what you stand for. What people see in their mind's eye when they consider what you would have done in a certain situation. And that's why he said he is a new posek. Before he was a posek who gave answers. Now he's a new kind of a posek simply in the image that people have of him in their mind. And when they think of what he would have done, they come up with the right answer. I think that's a great story. And I think it's a fitting tribute to one of the most remarkable Torah leaders of our generation, Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein. But I also think it's a great question to ask yourself and for me to ask myself. If someone was in a dilemma, maybe someone you know, maybe someone you don't know, and they took a moment to think, what would he say? What would you say? What would they conclude? What would be the answer that would come to them? And if you're not satisfied with what you think they would do if they were looking at you in their mind's eye trying to decide what to do, if you're not satisfied with what you think they would come up with, what can you do to change that? It's something to think about. 
It's something to think about perhaps specifically on this Shabbos that highlights leadership so much. Okay, allow me to share one, one last piece. So, Israel has a new Prime Minister, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. I invite you, by the way, to join us this Wednesday at noon on Zoom for a session with the amazing Professor Chaba Nikolnye. He will address the topic, Who is Naftali Bennett? It's a free session on Zoom. Come to the ADATH website. You'll see the links. Register and join us. It will be a great session. But I can give you one answer right now. Who is Naftali Bennett? Someone about whom the Haredi politicians are hysterically angry with. And if you're following the politics, you will know they are furious for a number of reasons. Many of them relate to the fact that they allege that what Bennett is planning to do is to stop Israelis from being religious. They actually say that. They have announced, the Haredi parties in Israel have announced, that they will not cooperate in any way with the new government, even in areas where they have their own financial self-interest at stake. I don't believe for a moment they'll stick with that, but that's what they're saying. They actually signed a declaration the other day promising that they will not work with any advisor who also speaks to the government. Okay. Clearly, again, if you're following Israeli politics, there are a number of ulterior motives to this outrage. But one of the accusations that they make is the commitment of the new government to finally put an end to the large-scale exemption of Haredim, of Haredi Jews in Israel from army service. So as this will again be a widely discussed, highly contentious controversy, allow me to briefly review my approach, which is the approach of religious Zionists, the Dati Lu'umi world, which I am so proud to be a part of. In this parsha, Chukas, near the end of the parsha, it takes place, as I mentioned before, near the end of the 40 years in the desert. The Jewish people are about to enter the land of Israel from the east. So right now in our parsha, they're somewhere in mid or eastern Jordan and they're traveling westward, they're going to have to cross the Jordan River to enter the land of Israel. But blocking their way are several, north to south, several small nations along the eastern bank of the Jordan River who will not let them pass through. 
So the Torah tells us in our Parsha, first they come to the nation of Sichon, one of these nations along the eastern bank of the Jordan River. And they say to them, please let us pass through your country. We're not taking anything. We don't want anything from you. We'll pay you for water along the way. We just want to get to the other side because if you don't let us through, we have to make a very long detour. And we've been walking for 40 years. We're a little bit tired. So just let us go straight straight through. We're not going to bother anything. Let us go straight through. The people of Sichon say no. And they bring an army to defend their border. God commands Moshe to raise an army. And there is a battle. And the Jewish army is victorious. And the Jewish people take part of the land of Sichon. And they conquer it. And it becomes part of Israel. Then the same thing happens with another nearby small country, Amori. And the same thing happens. Can we pass through? We'll pay you. Don't worry. They say no. There's a battle and the Jewish people conquer part of this country, Amori. So that actually enlarged the border of Israel to include land on the eastern bank of the Jordan River, and that was part of the land of Israel for about 600 years. Now, in wars like that, there were exemptions. Not every available person served in the army. There were certain exemptions from from military service. Those exemptions are actually discussed later in the Torah. But in discussing those exemptions, the Talmud makes a critical point. The Talmud says as follows, When does the Torah say that there are exemptions from military service for a war that is considered a voluntary war? Meaning the king or the leader decides to go to war, to enlarge the borders for some other national need. That's called milchemes rishus, a volitional war. So there are exemptions. Not everyone goes. Aval, however, says the Talmud, b'milchemes mitzvah, when the going to war is a mitzvah, it is obligatory. Hakal yotzin. Everyone goes, afilu chasan v'kala. Even the chasan and the kala, the groom and the bride from their chuppah, everyone goes, no exemptions. That's the Talmud. What is milchemes mitzvah? What category of war is it where there are no exemptions? So the Rambam Maimonides lists several categories, but the one that is important for us is, the Rambam writes, Ezras Yisrael miyad sar shaba alehem, to protect or defend Jews from enemies who are coming against us. That is called milchemes mitzvah, and it is for that type of war, there are no exemptions. Everyone serves. And by the way, Keep in mind the words of the Talmud. Everyone serves male and female. 
And on that point, the Ramah, Rabbi Moshe Islis, writing in the 1500s, adds even a preemptive attack is called Milchemes Mitzvah. That is, you don't have to wait until, God forbid, you are already being attacked. If you're doing it to protect and defend a population, even if it is preemptive, that is permitted. That's called Milchemes Mitzvah, and there are no exemptions for that. There is no question, certainly since the founding of the State of Israel, until today, and Nebuch for the foreseeable future, service in the Israel Defense Force and the security forces is Milchemes Mitzvah. It is necessary to protect and defend the citizens of the State of Israel. And therefore, since we unfortunately find ourselves in this situation and will for the foreseeable future, the need to train, to prepare, to be able to protect and defend militarily is obviously included in the mitzvah. The idea as Many in the Haredi world in Israel claim the idea that because they are studying Torah full-time, that they as a group should be exempted from military service. First, keep in mind, the number of individuals with this exemption numbers over 60,000. That's 60000. It is approximately 15% of eligible soldiers in Israel. That idea, well, I'm going to devote myself to full-time Torah study and therefore I should be exempted from having to fulfill my obligation of military service, that is simply not supported by Jewish law. There have been many efforts over the years to reform this. So far, all of them have failed, and they have failed due to the peculiarity of Israel's parliamentary system, which gives exaggerated power to certain small parties, political parties. So it has not happened, and it is far from certain that it will happen now. But apparently there is enough of a possibility of it happening that the Haredi political, poli uh, political parties are beside themselves with this government. But here's the point. Learning Torah is crucial for every single individual. It's necessary for the Jewish people. It's necessary for the state of Israel. And the state of Israel needs, again, to quote the words of Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein, not only security, but spirituality. And ultimately, the former for the sake of the latter. That's true. But the current mass exemption known as the Tal law 
It was instituted early in the history of the state of Israel when it exempted about 500 students. Now it's over 60,000. That exemption is in fact an anomaly in Jewish history because now you have to go back about 2,000 years till you find in history a Jewish army. So it's easy for people to forget the way it actually used to work. But throughout our history, the traditional approach, the traditional way that, that a Jewish society managed war was in a Hesder system. Now, the word Hesder means arrangement, and it refers to an arrangement where there is a combination of Torah study and military service a certain amount of time in Torah study exclusively, a certain amount of time in military service, back and forth, so that you accomplish both. Today, Hezder means this network of yeshivot in Israel at which study thousands and thousands of students who are engaged in this arrangement, this Hezder, where they do military service and then they come back to the, to, to the yeshiva and then they go back etc. And they fulfill both. Now that word is modern and that exact structure is modern. But this is the way that it always was. This is the way it was at the time of Rabbi Akiva. This is the way it was in the time of King David. This is the way it was in the time of Yahushua and Moshe. This system of studying Torah, and then having to set that aside for military purposes to defend, that's our norm. That is our historical norm, and that is our halachic norm. The Tal exemption that everyone is used to over the last, whatever it is, 60, 70 years, that is a contemporary aberration. Maybe we would like for this not to be so. Maybe we would like for it to be that there are some who devote themselves to physical pursuits, military, and there are others that devote themselves exclusively to spiritual pursuits and scholarly pursuits. We actually find this wish expressed in the Talmud, the Talmud Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud. Rabban Shimon Bar Yochai Omar, the famous Rashbi, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai said, If I would have been at Mount Sinai, at the time that God gave the Torah to the Jewish people, I would have asked God, Please God, I request that you give to every single human being two mouths. Two. Two mouths. Chad Deraisa, one to use for speaking holy words. And the other to use for mundane matters, for everyday matters. One mouth should be reserved only for holiness, and the other mouth only reserved for mundane matters. It is understandable, even laudable, 
that there are groups of Jewish people who want to be freed from mundane obligations to devote themselves exclusively to Torah and study and spirituality. But God did not agree to that. God did not structure our society like that. That is not what God wanted. Every single one of us must study Torah and engage in the necessities of life. And this is a necessity. The IDF reports that today it needs more soldiers than it has, and that need will grow in the coming years. It is true that serving in Sahal, serving in the IDF, is challenging for a religious person. There are matters of Jewish law that are hard to observe. There are issues of modesty in places where men and women are serving together. There are questions and challenges to a person's character, uh, being exposed to the savagery of war, the brutality of war, the, the dulling of the sensitivity to morality and spirituality, there are challenges. The Ramban, Nachmanides, writes, that's why there is a mitzvah later in the Torah. The Torah says, Ki when you shall go to war against your enemy, you shall guard yourself against any evil thing. Because there are pitfalls. There are problems with going to war. So you need to guard yourself. You need to protect yourself. You need to put in the effort to make sure that you can overcome those problems that would be threats to your spirituality and to your religiosity. You have to find ways to overcome it. And allow me to add one more point from Ravon Lichtenstein. Because Ravaran says that the need is even more fundamental than that. The famous line in Pirkei Avos, Shimon HaTzadok HaYomer, Simon the Righteous would used to say, Al Shlosha Dvarim HaOlam Omed. The world stands on three pillars. Al HaTorah, the study of Torah. Al HaAvoda, serving God through prayer. V'al Gmilas Chasadim, and acts of kindness, acts of kindness and compassion. To another person. It is simply a fact. It's a sad fact, but it is a true fact that in Israel today and for the foreseeable future, the greatest single kindness a person can perform is helping to defend his fellow's life. How can any Jew Imagine exempting themselves from the opportunity to do that. And it causes Chil Hashem. It causes a desecration of God's name. I mentioned to you the last serious effort to try to do away with this. 
It was a committee that was known as the Plesner Committee, named after the member of Knesset, Yochanan Plesner. The full name of the committee that tried to get away with this mass exemption, but did not succeed at that time, the full name is telling. The Plesner Committee for Promoting Service and Equalizing the Burden. Because here's the ultimate point. Haredim claim that the study of Torah protects Israel as much as, if not more than, the Israel Defense Force. Now, I believe that there is truth in that. And that there should always be some limited number of deserving individuals whose excellence and diligence in Torah study exempts them from military service. Maybe one or two or three thousand. I don't know the number, but certainly not 60,000 and growing. Because here's the point. While there are 60,000 learning Torah in safety, where the worst danger is the possibility of a paper cut. The rest of the country is risking and losing their lives, men and women, husbands and wives, parents and children and siblings, losing their lives at a higher rate because the burden is not being shared equally or fairly. And it has created a tremendous Chilul Hashem, a desecration of God's name, a deep divide in Israeli society. And the vituperative animosity that this causes only increases. Now, I want to be very honest and let's be clear. The exemptions have continued and grown over the years because it was in the interest of the mainstream political leaders, secular political leaders. It was in their interest to maintain it in order to keep power for themselves. That's how coalition politics works. I hope that politicians will hold to their promise this time and repeal the Tal law. I hope the IDF will do its best to accept Haredim in a way that does not cause them to compromise on matters of Jewish law or modesty or character. And I hope that Haredi leaders will tone down their hysteria, integrate the bulk of the Haredi population into the most meaningful acts of chesed. And that would at least begin the healing of the terrible, terrible rift that exists now in Israeli society. It's the right thing to do according to morality and fairness, according to Jewish law, according to Jewish history. It's time.
It's time for this to happen. My friends, I want to thank you very much. I want to wish you a wonderful evening and a beautiful Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.